Hello, everyone, and welcome to this Ossert podcast brought to you by Microsoft Forefront. Thank you to Microsoft. In this presentation, you'll hear Tor project leader Roger Dingledine. Is that Dingledine? I don't know. Uh, talking all about Tor. Who uses it? Uh, what is it good for? Why do they use it? Uh, for those who don't know what it is, Tor is a free software anonymizing network that helps people around the world use the internet in safety. Uh, well, that's the official blurb anyway. So if you're like a human rights activist in some horrible country, you want to use Tor. Uh, Tor's 1,600 volunteer relays carry traffic for several hundred thousand users, including ordinary citizens who want protection from identity theft and prying corporations. Uh, corporations actually use Tor uh, when they want to look at a competitor's website in private, for example. And soldiers and aid workers in the Middle East who need to contact their home servers without fear of physical harm also use Tor. So if you're based in Iran or China or somewhere like that and you don't want the government being able to identify your source IP, it's actually a pretty handy tool. But governments are cottoning on to Tor and making efforts to block their citizens from using the Tor network. Roger discusses the changes the Tor project has made to combat these government restrictions. It's a good talk and I hope you enjoy it. There are lots of things we could talk about today. I started out with the plan of let's talk about Tor and censorship and the role of Tor in Iran and China and Thailand and Vietnam and so on. And then I was talking to a bunch of people over the past few days and they were saying, oh, wait a minute, what do I have to hide? So I figure I will sort of mash two talks together. The first one is who uses Tor, how does it work, why do they use it, what do they care about privacy for? And then the second one is more uh, what we've learned over the past year with Iran trying to censor their internet and China and so on. Okay, so what is this Tor thing? Uh, there are a bunch of different things that are Tor. First of all, Tor is free software. It's a program that you can install on your computer and it routes through a network of volunteers to pop out somewhere else. So the goal is somebody watching your local network connection can't figure out what website you're going to and somebody at the website end can't figure out where you're coming from. And then the third goal is there's no single point in the infrastructure that gets to learn both who you are and where you're going. So the Tor software. Tor is also a network. It's these networks of volunteers. It's the same program, the same Tor program. If you configure it as a client, then you're one of the users of the network. If you configure it as a relay, then you're one of these volunteers. We've got something like 1,600 volunteers. Tor is also a protocol. We have RFC-style specs that describe this is what Tor looks like on the wire, and that means that a bunch of people in Germany built their own Tor client. A fellow, a fellow at Yale University built his own Tor client. So our goal is to have multiple implementations so that we can make sure that, first of all, our spec actually makes sense, and second of all, uh, the code that we have actually follows the spec. So it's free software, open source. One of the neat things about Tor is the community of researchers and developers and users and activists around the world. Pretty much every computer science department I go to around the world has grad students doing research on attacking or defending Tor. Unfortunately, it's mostly attacking Tor because uh, grad students find it a lot easier to come up with an attack, show that it mostly works, and then move on to the next attack, uh, leaving the poor Tor developers to try to clean up after every attack. But we can talk more about that one afterwards. Uh, another interesting perspective. Am I talking too fast or just right? I see some nods. I see some. Uh, perfect. Okay. Um, so another interesting thing about Tor is the diversity of funders that we have. We started out funded by the U.S. Naval Research Lab, the Department of Defense. 
And from there, we were funded by the Electronic Frontier Foundation. So it's fun going to those different groups and, uh, for example, going to the U.S. military and saying that same thing that you need for protecting your troops, those left-wing libertarian wackos also need exactly the same tool for their own purposes. And then you go to the EFF folks and you say that same thing that you want to protect civil liberties around the world, those right-wing conservative wackos need the same thing for their own purposes. So part of our goal is to bring all these different groups of users into the same anonymity system so that they can blend together. So from EFF, we were funded by another U.S. government group called the International Broadcasting Bureau. They're the folks who run Voice of America, Radio Free Asia, stuff like that. And they have some websites that a lot of people around the world can't reach, and they want to fix that. So turns out once you've built an anonymity system where people watching you locally can't figure out where you're going, then they also can't decide which websites you're allowed to reach from wherever you happen to be. Okay, so Tor is also a 501c3 U.S. nonprofit. I was just chatting with uh, the fellow running the session here, and he was saying people in Australia don't understand nonprofits. They think if you don't, if you run a nonprofit, that means there's no money involved. We're up to 17 uh, people funded to work on Tor right now. Uh, not all of them full-time, but quite a, uh, something like 10 of them full-time. So there are a lot of people developing Tor, and there's a huge ecosystem around that of volunteers who are running the relays, who are working on the research side, who are helping to maintain pieces of the program. Um, it's a big community of people. So our goal as a nonprofit is we want to build a Tor system that can scale to handle everybody in the world who wants privacy, and teach everybody in the world what this privacy thing is and why they might care. So we've got a, a lot of work ahead of us. So Tor has some number of users. It's an anonymity system, so it's a bit hard to tell for sure how many users we've got. But I'm guessing there are something like 400,000 or 500,000 Tor clients running right now. Okay, so let's take a step back. What sort of threat model do we have in mind? What sort of attacker model uh, are we trying to think about? So we've got Alice over here, and she's trying to browse the web to some Bob, and she's hoping that the attacker doesn't learn uh, that this Alice is talking to this Bob. So where can the attacker be? The attacker might be watching Alice's local network. Maybe that's her ISP, Telstra. Maybe she's in Tunisia, and there's only one uh, telephone company, so it gets to watch everything Alice does. Uh, or maybe the attacker is on the Bob end. Maybe it's watching WikiLeaks or Indie Media, and it wants to know who is accessing these websites to build a profile of them. Or maybe the attacker is Bob. Maybe it's CNN.com, and they really want to know who their users are so they can advertise to them better. Uh, or maybe it's some tier one ISP in the middle like AT&T and they get to see a lot of internet traffic and correlate. So if the attacker is in all of these red boxes, we're screwed. We can't protect against that. And in a few more slides, I'll explain what we can do and what we can't do. Another point, anonymity is not crypto. I talk to a lot of corporations who say, I don't need that anonymity stuff because I use a VPN, so I'm totally safe. And that's great. Encryption is good. You should use encryption. But even when you're using encryption, somebody watching you can still figure out who you're talking to, when you're talking to them, how much you're talking to them. And this is, these social network attributes are what all the intelligence agencies use to try to break uh, traffic these days. Nobody tries to break the encryption. It's all about let's map out the social network, let's figure out who the hubs are, and then we're going to go uh, break into their house and install wiretaps or 
steal their hardware and change it or uh, use a remote uh, overflow and then I'm running their computer, stuff like that. So nobody tries to break the encryption. Okay, so there are some other versions of anonymity that I'd like something stronger than. Um, for example, there are a bunch of peer-to-peer -peer file sharing systems out there that have a property that I would call plausible deniability. The idea is you asked me for the file and I gave you the file, but it might not have been me. Maybe I was relaying it for somebody else. You can't prove it was me who published this document into the system. That might work great the first time. What about the 40th time somebody asks for the file and you're the guy providing it? Pretty soon statistics starts to make it look very unlikely that you're just, you know, coincidentally involved each time. So I want something stronger than that. I want something where if China narrows it down to six people and they can't prove which one of those six it is, that's not good enough. I need something a lot stronger than that. And then there are the single hot proxy commercial anonymizers out there where it's one computer and all the traffic goes through that one computer and they say, we promise we won't look at any of the traffic going through the computer. Okay, okay, we look at all of it. We promise we won't remember any of the traffic going through the computer. Okay, okay, we, we log all of it. We promise we won't tell anybody any of the traffic that goes through the computer. I don't know what the fourth line is, but I want something stronger than that. I was talking to the uh, CTO, I think, of anonymizer.com a few years ago, and he was saying, we never answer subpoenas. If, if we ever answered a subpoena, then nobody would trust us ever again. So, uh, of course, we don't answer that sort of thing. So last year I was talking to the U.S. Department of Justice trying to explain what Tor is to them and teach them how the internet works. And one of them broke in partway through and said, why can't you be like Anonymizer? It's great. We send them a subpoena. They send us an answer. It's great. Why can't you be like that? So what I would like is privacy by design or by technology. I want the technology to keep you safe rather than having a point that could screw you and knows everything and promises not to. Okay, so let's take a step back. How do we actually phrase these sorts of things? I actually only use the word anonymity when I'm talking to other researchers. When I'm talking to my parents and my grandparents, I tell them I'm working on a privacy system. When I'm talking to Google and Walmart, I work on communication security or network security because anonymity, that's scary. Privacy, that's stupid. Privacy's dead. But security, good point. I need security. So it's about figuring out how to phrase it for the different groups that I'm talking to. And when I'm talking to the U.S. military and law enforcement and governments, I work on traffic analysis resistant communication networks, which again, are exactly the same tool, exactly the same security properties, but we have to phrase things differently because they say, privacy is dumb, I don't need that. Security, there are plenty of snake oil companies that have sold me security. I've got plenty of security, thank you. But traffic analysis resistance? Good point. I do need to send my agent over to Israel and have him contact me back, and I don't want anybody to learn his affiliation or location. And there's, there's the fourth category we learned about uh, in the past few years, which is on the reachability side. There are a lot of people around the world who can't get to BBC or can't get to Blogspot, and they, they don't mind the security properties. They like the fact that other people uh, can't just enumerate a list of all the people doing that, but they really care about the reachability side. How do I get to the websites that I want to get to? Okay. Um, a little bit more detail. I'm going to sort of rush through this because this is a separate talk, but here are some anecdotes of people who've come to me and said, I use Tor and, and here's why I care about this stuff. 
Um, so, for example, bloggers around the world, um, a few years ago, there, was, there were two bloggers in California that blogged about what Apple was going to come up with next, and they were right. So Apple sued the ISP to learn who they were to shut them up. Um, that sucks. I don't want to live in a world where large corporations can shut down individuals, and they find that the most efficient route for silencing people. Um, another example, eight-year-old Alice. Um, let's say your daughter or your sister logs into an internet chat room and you've trained her very well. You've said, when you're talking to strangers on the internet, don't tell them your name, don't tell them your address, don't tell them personal information. So she logs in. Before she says anything, she immediately broadcasts your IP address to everybody else in the chat room. And it's not so hard to turn an IP address into a set of geolocation coordinates. It's not so hard to turn a set of geolocation coordinates into a Google satellite photograph. I'm told from the Google people we're going to have real-time video in not so long. So before she says anything, I can see whether there's a car parked out front of the house or not. That's fundamentally broken. By default, the internet should be providing security, should be providing privacy, anonymity, traffic analysis resistance. And then you should be able to choose on top of that what information you'd like to reveal to the person you're talking to. I don't advocate that everybody in the world has to be anonymous. I advocate that you should get to choose what you want to reveal about your personal information based on who you're talking to or what your context is. Um, another example, consumer Alice. Um, imagine you go to Amazon and you like to race cars. So you look at a bunch of car racing books. You don't buy any, you just look at them. Three years later, you go to get car insurance. And your insurance company says, do you like to race cars? And you say no. And they say, what about those books you looked at on Amazon three years ago? Is that crazy talk? I don't know. They have the database. All these huge corporations are building these huge databases. We don't know what they're planning to do with them down the road. Step one, build the database. Step three, profit. I don't know what happens in step two. Um, and there are a bunch of different examples of how corporations can screw up. Um, there are every week we hear about a new company in California that just lost 30 million names, addresses, credit card numbers, national ID numbers. Um, yeah. And the network can track also. I was talking to an ISP. I don't remember if it was Verizon or Comcast, but they were saying, yeah, we collect all the click log data of all of our users and we sell it because, hey, free money. Why wouldn't we sell aggregated user data? So do you really want to end up in that database? Who knows what they're going to do with it or even if they can keep it safe? And then corporations care about the same stuff for the same reasons, but they phrase things differently. Um, maybe you want to check out the competition's website without having them know that you're doing it. Back before I worked on Tor, I worked at a startup, and one of my jobs each day was to go through the web logs and send a summary to the salespeople of who had looked at which page for how long. And that meant the next morning the salespeople could call them back and say, hey, it looks like you spent eight and a half minutes looking at this product page. Can I tell you more? They quickly learned not to phrase it that way because that really freaked people out. But that's how business works these days. Or where does Ford buy its tires? Is that the sort of thing that, uh, that you really want your competition to be able to know? What are your engineering department's favorite search terms? Uh, if every engineer at Cisco goes to monster.com today to look for a new job, does Monster sell that information? Should they? Law enforcement also cares about this stuff. One of my side hobbies is teaching uh, law enforcement around the world uh, how internet security works and what Tor is for. And more and more when I'm doing these talks to law enforcement, uh, there's somebody in the audience who says, I use Tor every day for my job. 
So that's a, a worthwhile uh, conclusion, I hope. Okay, so what do they use it for? Maybe they want to investigate a website without having .gov show up in the web logs. Uh, turns out if you're doing a sting operation and you show up in the chat room and you say, hey, I'm eight years old, I really want to meet you on the street corner, and you show up from an FBI.gov address, it doesn't work so well. Um, and then organized crime. I was talking to some folks from Indianapolis a few years ago, and they said, uh, there, there is mafia working in my area, and I could go after them, but, you know, they're going to know it's me, and they know where my family is, and it's really not worth it. I'm just going to go after the, the easier criminals. I'm going to leave those guys alone. That sucks. And then anonymous tips, turning things around. The CIA runs an anonymous tip line. It's called the Iraqi Rewards Program. The idea is some dude in Baghdad sees a roadside bomb. He's supposed to go into an internet cafe, go to CIA.gov, and click on I want to submit an anonymous tip. And the CIA promises, I guess, that they won't remember who he is. I don't buy that. And anybody watching the internet cafe gets to watch this guy reporting his anonymous tip to CIA.gov. So they knew there was something weird there, so now they use SSL. So now the guy walks into the internet cafe and has an encrypted conversation with CIA.gov. This does not help. So wouldn't it be nice if that fellow had the ability to keep himself safe, to choose for himself how much anonymity, privacy, security he's going to get on his side? And then governments care about this stuff for the same reasons again, but they phrase things differently. What would you bid for a list of Baghdad IP addresses that get email from .gov? Does anybody else out there want that information? The Naval Research Lab guy that we do research with, whenever he goes out of the country, he gets lots of training. Don't wear your American baseball cap. Don't yell, I love America. Don't wear the American flag. He gets no training. Don't log in directly to your Navy.mil email account. And that means that anybody watching the hotel he's in gets to say, room 806, U.S. Navy guy. Is that the sort of thing you want to broadcast everywhere? What does the FBI Google for? Google knows, the FBI's ISP knows, major telephone companies like AT&T know, I guess that means NSA knows. Who else gets to learn this sort of thing? And then journalists and activists also care about this stuff. The first time I used this slide, I was doing a talk for the U.S. Department of Justice, and I, I wrote it as journalists and dissidents care about this stuff, and they were really upset. So I changed it to activists, and now they were totally fine with it. So it's all about the phrasing, I guess. So why do activists and journalists care about this stuff? Uh, maybe you're a whistleblower, and your ISP is monitoring you. There you are in Morocco, and you really want to write something on WikiLeaks or Wikipedia, but they want to know who's connecting to which website. Uh, or maybe the website end is monitored. Um, it's certainly the case that there are plenty of conspiracy websites in the U.S. that the FBI monitors, and I imagine that's true all around the world. Um, and then uh, there's the Yahoo case in China a few years ago. Uh, there was a Yahoo.cn user, and uh, he said something about China to the rest of the world. And China went to Yahoo and said, tell us who that user is. We, we want to make them a better citizen. And Yahoo said, why certainly. You are a government. We follow the laws of all governments. Here's your user. And that got a lot of people angry, but that's how the world works. So wouldn't it have been nice if that fellow managed to keep himself safe to, to make the, the privacy that he was getting in his own hands rather than trusting Yahoo to keep him safe? 
Uh, or maybe the website is filtered and you want to be able to get around the local filters. Um, or maybe it's monitored. Saudi Arabia doesn't actually filter that much. It's much more uh, social pressure where you say, I'm not even going to try to go to that website because my father will beat me if he learns that I did that. So no way am I loading that website. So there are a lot of different approaches to censorship. Okay, so the big picture is you can't get anonymity on your, by yourself. Uh, I, we were talking to IBM long ago and they were saying, well, this is fantastic, but I just want to run the IBM anonymity network and we should be the only users. And that doesn't work. You don't get what you're looking for. Uh, another example there is um, we can't run the cancer survivors anonymity network and have cancer survivors be the only users because that's not going to do what you want. So you put them all together and you're all set. So far so good. Am I going too fast, too slow, just right? I see some thumbs up. Perfect. And yes, bad people need anonymity too. But if you're willing to break the law, there are a lot of other ways, sometimes better ways, that you can get anonymity. You should steal a cell phone, mobile phone here, and use it and throw it in a ditch. You should break into computers in Korea, China, Ohio, uh, other places, and route through them. There are so many ways that you can get good enough anonymity, security, privacy, if you're willing to be a bad person. So a brief taxonomy of bad people on the internet. You start with your Trojans and your viruses and your exploits. From there you build your bot networks and your zombie networks. And from there you profit. That's a whole separate talk. Uh, in fact, there are quite a few talks here uh, at this conference on this topic, so I won't go into that. But another important thing to think about, the challenge that we have as Tor, we need to come up with a way for millions of people to be able to get anonymity together in a way that I can tell everybody about and it still stays safe. The bad guys have a different problem. The bad guys want to come up with a way for 20 people to stay safe for two weeks and they don't have to tell anybody what it is. That's a much easier problem. So the current situation is the bad guys are doing great and the good guys, not just activists but law enforcement and governments and corporations and so on, have very little security on the internet. So we're in the worst of all worlds at this point. Okay, so how do you actually build one of these? The easy answer is you put a relay somewhere and you route all the stuff through it and you promise not to reveal who's talking to what. And the big first problem there is what if that central point of failure fails? What if you bribe the janitor, uh, buy the company, break in, get a box next door at the colo and there's one wire going in, the same wire goes out, um, send a guy named Guido on an airplane to break some kneecaps. The list goes on and on of ways that uh, single points of failure can fail. And it's worse than that. You don't even have to pay attention to the middle hop. So if you look at the, the stream of traffic going in that has a certain pattern and you see a stream of traffic coming out that has the same pattern, you're a winner. The math is shockingly easy to match up a stream coming in and a, the same stream going out. So if I get to see the cable going into Anonymizer, I can tell you all the users, all the destinations and match them up with quite easy math. So the goal of Tor is to distribute the trust so that there's no single point that gets to learn about both Alice and Bob. That means if R1 is bad, if he's trying to figure out what Alice is doing, he knows that Alice is using Tor, but he doesn't know what she's doing. And if R3 is bad, he knows somebody is talking to Bob, but he doesn't know who is talking to Bob. And if they're both bad, then we're screwed. 
because R1 can see a certain pattern, R3 can see the same pattern, and they can confirm through traffic analysis what we call traffic confirmation that in fact this Alice is talking to this Bob. So that means that the security from the Tor network comes from having a diverse and dispersed set of these purple boxes of these relays. The more different places there are that we have relays and the, the greater variety of relays we have, the fewer attackers there are going to be who are in the right place to win. So at this point, uh, probably AT&T has lots of vantage points on the Tor network and would be a fine adversary, but probably French intelligence doesn't. So there's another open research area of what sort of capabilities do attackers actually have relative to internet locations. And then there's crypto, but I'm not really going to talk about that very much. Um, a couple of things to point out, though. Uh, one of them, those white lines going from R3 to Bob are not encrypted. Tor does not magically encrypt the internet. And this is very confusing for a lot of users because they say, I have installed a security tool, now I am secure. And there's actually more to it than that. And one of our challenges is teaching people about end-to-end -end encryption, SSL, authentication, that sort of thing. Um, if you want encryption or authentication, you have to use it while you're using Tor also. So for example, Slashdot doesn't support SSL, so if you're logging into Slashdot through Tor, you will be telling some random dude your username and password. It's exactly the same situation as if you log into Slashdot from this room right here. You'll be selling probably more random dudes, your username and password. Okay, so that was the crash course on Tor and who uses it and who cares. And um, now I'm going to move on to phase two of the talk, which is let's talk about circumvention, censorship, and the role that Tor can play in that. So let's take a step back. There are two pieces to all these proxying schemes, all the circumvention tools out there. The first piece is the relaying component. How do you build the paths through the network? How do you get the encryption right? How do you connect the, the incoming stream requests to which circuit you're going? Stuff like that. And that's mostly what Tor is focused on. And then the second piece is the discovery component. How do you learn where the relays are in the network so that you can make sure you're using the same network as everybody else? And uh, a lot of circumvention tools, a lot of tools that are mainly focused on getting around the firewall, say our relay component is simple. It's a proxy. And then they focus entirely on the discovery component. Tor got into this the other way around where we said, here's our really cool, well-validated relay component. And the discovery component is this trivial thing called the directory service. So there are all these relays here. Each of them builds a self-signed descriptor that says, here's my public key, here's my address, my exit policy, stuff like that. And I'm going to assign that and upload it to seven or eight directory authorities. And their addresses are hard-coded in your Tor client. Their public keys are hard-coded in your Tor client. And those seven or eight directory authorities build a network status consensus. They all sign it. And then it gets cached everywhere. And that means that if you're a user, if you're a client, you just connect to any directory mirror. You can download the consensus status. You can check the signatures on it and know that you're using the same network as everybody else. So that's a very simple approach. We built it. It's worked. It's worked for years. Um, but it's not very good in the case of a, an attacker that wants to block connections to the Tor network. So there are a bunch of ways to block connections to the Tor network. The first way is uh, you take those seven IP addresses and you put them in your filter list. You're done. You win. Nobody can bootstrap on the Tor network. The second approach is you pull down the list of 1,600 volunteer relay IP addresses and you block all of them. 
And now even if they can bootstrap, there's no relay that they can get to. They can't reach anybody in the Tor network. Um, and China did that uh, in September uh, and December and March, and we'll get to that in a bit. Um, the other approach is filtering based on the Tor network's protocol. Um, for example, once upon a time, we spoke HTTP to do directory fetches and SSL to actually do the encrypted connections. And that meant that SmartFilter and WebSense and a few others put in a little rule saying, if you see this HTTP request, then it's Tor traffic, kill it. And since Iran was using SmartFilter at the time and Syria was using WebSense, then suddenly Iran and Syria blocked the Tor protocol, and you couldn't use Tor from inside those countries. So that, that convinced us to switch it over, so now we're doing the directory fetches inside TLS. So now Tor basically looks like uh, a Firefox talking to an Apache. And there's an open research question of how, how much detail do you have to look at before you can distinguish, but we'll get to that in a bit. And then the fourth category of how you block Tor is you block torproject.org, and then people just give up. Um, they blocked it in, it's blocked in a lot of countries at this point. It actually started first blocked in Thailand, which is an interesting story because I was getting lots of mail from people in Thailand saying, I live in a democracy and they filtered your website, I'm going to sue. And then two years later the tanks roll and it turns out maybe they don't live in a democracy. So the other side of this is we're the early warning system. Um, if your government starts blocking torproject.org and you think you live in a democracy, then think again. Okay, so the solution that we rolled out a few years ago, we, in 2007 we said, so it's easy to block the Tor network, and it's fun to sit around debating why nobody's done it, but eventually they're going to. Eventually they're going to grab that big list of public IP addresses and filter them, and we lose. Um, so the solution we have is what we call bridge relays. The idea is we've got 400,000 users, Alice's, around the world, and we turn them into dark relays or unlisted relays. And that means that you can connect from you to the bridge to the rest of the Tor network. Um, so we've changed the problem from how do we publish 1,600 public IP addresses without the Chinese government learning about them, which is an impossible problem, to how do we publish 500 or 1,000 or 10,000 bridge addresses one at a time to people who need them without letting the bad guys learn all of them. And that's a tough arms race, but it's at least, it, it's an arms race that we can handle. Uh, okay, so did I just skip? Nope, I'm gonna skip some slides on the theory that uh, otherwise I will run out of time um, very quickly. Okay, so what did we actually see in June in 2009 in Iran? So the bottom line, the red one, is number of users connecting to the public Tor network. Uh, Tor worked the whole time during June in Iran. So uh, right about there when it starts to spike is when the election happened, and then there were a lot of people saying, wait a minute, I, I, I need to be able to reach Twitter or Facebook or figure out what the blogs are saying or tell somebody what's going on in my area. So there were a lot of people who were suddenly trying to use the Tor network. And it was harder and harder to use because Iran basically had a knob that they had uh, purchased from Nokia Siemens not so long before where they turned down the internet. And the more upset they get, the more they turn down the internet. And that means that SSL is really hard to do and Tor is hard to do. But there were a lot of people who were really determined to do it anyway. So I've 
put China on the same graph because during that whole month, all the Western newspapers were saying, let me tell you what's going on in Iran. It's really a, a, a risky place right now. And at the same time, there were twice as many or more people using Tor in China. So this first bump up here is uh, June 4th or May 35, as they call it, uh, the anniversary of Tiananmen Square. And there were a lot of people that day who were saying, uh, what's this thing that happened in 1989? I want to learn more about it. So that's the small bump. The really big bump over here is when China blocked Google Search, Google News, Google Groups, Google Calendar. And at that point, there were a lot of people in China who used to be saying, I'm so glad my government keeps me safe on the Internet, who were suddenly saying, holy crap, they're filtering the Internet. This is not good. I live in a bad place. And then a few days later, they unblocked Google, and nobody really needed Tor anymore. But one of the challenges there is China is filtering stuff and then moving back, and then filtering stuff and then moving back. And that means that they're evolving their citizens to be good at getting around the filter. Because every time they start filtering things more, 100,000 people in China learn about a circumvention tool. And then they stop filtering and they're like, okay, well, I know about it, but I don't need it now. So there's a challenge there in terms of the arms race inside China. Okay, so that was the good news of here are two great cases where Tor was useful. September 25 was when China finally decided they wanted to block the internet. So um, in these two cases, it was Tiananmen Square, and uh, I'm not sure what the political event was here. But October 1 was the 60th anniversary of some guy becoming in power in China. And leading up to October 1, um, they worked really hard to block a lot of different uh, proxying and circumvention tools and websites and so on. So Tor was one of the many that they blocked. And this is uh, a set of stats from one Tor relay of how many people were connecting to it as the first hop uh, from China. And 10,000 people a day or something on one of the 1,600 relays. And then, boom, it flatlines. And then there's a hiccup where they screw up their filtering. But then they get it right again and um, no users connecting from China to this relay. So that's sad. That's kind of bad. But at the same time, we had been teaching a lot of people in China what this bridge thing is and how to get their own bridge address and how it works. So the good news is the number of people using bridges over that same week just switched. The same, the same set of users stopped using the public network because they couldn't reach it and started using bridges. So that's a pretty cool success story. There were a lot of other circumvention tools that just got filtered that week, and they said, give us a few more days and we'll come up with a new version of the program, and then you can start using the new version. So Tor worked the whole time, and it worked for quite a while after that. There were something like 30,000 people who switched over to using bridges in the course of a week. So how do you find a bridge? Uh, this is also an ongoing research question, but the general idea is you take the big pile of bridges you've got and you break them up into different bridge distribution strategies where each strategy forces the attacker to exercise some scarce resource. For example, you show up to https bridges.torproject.org and we look at your IP address and depending on where on the internet you came from, we give you certain bridges. And that means that if you want to learn all the bridges that we give out by IP address, you have to have lots of slash 16s around the world. Turns out China does. They broke this one on the same day as they broke, um, on the same day as this happened, they also learned all the bridges that we give out based on IP address. Um, the second approach we had was by Gmail account. 
So you email us from your Gmail address, we'll send you a few bridges, and if you want to learn a lot of bridges, then you need to make a lot of Gmail accounts, and we'll leave it to Google to figure out how to rate limit that, because they already have that challenge in terms of spammers and fishers and other bad people making Gmail accounts. Turns out China found it hard to break this one, or at least found it not worthwhile to break this one. And part of the challenge from our side was we want to come up with a bunch of strategies, and we've got no clue what China is going to be good at or bad at. So we deploy all of them, and we find out which ones they break and which ones they don't. And as a security person, I mean, I've read all this stuff about people in India who are really good at solving CAPTCHAs all day long for two cents per CAPTCHA or two cents an hour or whatever it is. Uh, China did not go to these people. They did not bother breaking the CAPTCHAs. They just left those bridges alone. And there are a bunch of other strategies that we should think about more. For example, you SMS us, and based on your phone number, we give you an answer. Or we look at your position in a social network, so you need to know a lot of other people, some of whom we know in person, before we're going to be willing to give you some bridges. And in fact, um, on September 25, when they blocked some of the bridges, um, we actually had three categories of bridges. We had the IP-based ones, the Gmail-based ones, and the ones we hadn't given out to anybody yet. And on that day, um, I sent 40 bridges we hadn't given to anybody to a friend of mine in Shanghai and said, do good things with these. Get them to the people who need them. So he set up a password-protected Twitter account, signed up his 1,200 closest friends, and suddenly there were a lot of people who knew bridges, and none of those bridges got blocked. So I guess he chose his 1,200 people well. One of the other things here, China doesn't block the bridges or the, the public relays every day. I used to think the arms race would be a bridge goes up, they look for it, they shot it down. Uh, a bridge goes up, they look for it, they shut it down. They only do blocking events running up to certain political things. So on September 25, they did a big blocking event. And then nothing until December 25. Apparently there was some British journalist who got killed in China on December 26, and it was a big mess. So they preemptively blocked a lot of circumvention tools the day before in order to make sure that people inside China wouldn't be able to get out on that day. And then in March, they did another blocking event because there was the uh, Chinese Congress going on. And uh, they are in the process of doing another blocking event right now because we're leading back up to uh, the Tiananmen Square anniversary again, uh, May 35th, as they call it in China, because that's easier to search for. Uh, so I used to think that it would be an ongoing uh, smooth arms race, and it isn't. Okay, so another uh, interesting point. I was talking earlier about hiding Tor's network fingerprint, changing it so that we do the directory fetches inside SSL. And one of the interesting side effects here, uh, at the beginning of 2009, Iran stopped using smart filter. They said, we don't need those Western devils. We can do our own filtering. And then when the whole June election thing happened, about half the people who were using Tor inside Iran were using an old version of Tor that used to be filtered by smart filter. So I'm not sure what lesson to learn there. One lesson is there were tens of thousands of people in Iran who had tried Tor for years earlier and said, okay, this is kind of neat, but I'm not sure I need this yet. And then suddenly they did need it and they already had it installed. Okay, so let's take another step back. What are we actually dealing with? What is the attacker trying to do here? So there are two main goals the attacker has. One of them is they want to uh, restrict 
corruption, embarrassing, rights violations, that sort of thing. They don't want people to make fun of them too much. Um, and another goal is if you're actually trying to organize opposition information, then they, they want to shut you down. And they don't actually have to shut everybody down. They just have to give people the impression that they're in control, and then people will self-censor. Another interesting point. They don't go after you if you read the wrong web page. I talk to a lot of security people who say, but yeah, if you read a democracy site, they're going to kick down your door and kill you. If you read a democracy site, the worst they do is they say, oops, we should filter that, and then they filter it. If you're publishing stuff, that's a totally different story. Um, and then another interesting point, um, they have a lot of reasons not to shut down the whole internet. When I first started this out, I was thinking, so if I make China turn off the internet, did I win or did I lose? And the answer is they're not going to turn off the internet. They've got too many other reasons why they needed to keep, we need, need to keep it alive. Okay, so what are the other, what sort of network attacks are we looking at here? The most common one around the world is block by IP address or port. Another one that goes on in China is intercept DNS requests and point people somewhere else. If you go to youtube.com from Turkey, you get a small page in a language you don't understand that says YouTube is not a reasonable page for you to go to. And that's because they've got some guy named Ataturk that some other guy made fun of on YouTube and they really don't want people uh, learning about how to make fun of the, that particular fellow. China has another approach, which is you look at TCP packets going by on the wire, and if the TCP packet has a substring that, that you don't like, like Falun, for example, then you send reset packets in both directions, and you tear down the TCP connection. Um, Iran has these shiny new deep packet inspection machines, so they can look for SSL uh, not by saying it's 443, therefore it's SSL, but actually by looking at the handshake on the wire. And we started out with Tor saying, let's look like SSL, because nobody would ever block SSL. And then Iran bought these magic little machines that block SSL when they want to. So um, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. Um, and then the last approach that people use for filtering, uh, Russia doesn't actually filter very much. Russia mostly just pays people to show up at the blog right after you. So you show up to the blog and you say, I'm not really sure I like my country because of this reason and that reason. And then 4,000 people show up right after you saying, I love Russia. Russia's great because of this and this. Or they show up saying, I don't like Russia because of these other reasons. And that means that if you're reading blogs and live journal and so on about Russia, you have no clue what people actually think and what people paid by the government to say that are thinking. There's no way to distinguish it. China has what's called a 50-cent party where there are people paid 0.5 currency units to post pro-government or anti-government in a confusing way or something like that, just to pollute the blogosphere so much that nobody can follow what's going on. Okay, so what else are we up against? Government firewalls used to be stateless. The Chinese firewall right now, it can look at the TCP packets, but it can't remember very much. It can't think very hard about every TCP packet. Um, so Burma, for example, when they wanted to do their coup, they just turn off the internet. Step one, no internet, now let's do a coup. Um, China can't afford to do that. Iran is somewhere in between where they say, I think there's going to be some trouble today. Let's turn off the internet for today. We'll turn it on later. One of the big challenges here is a lot of these filters 
are built and sold by Western corporations. Um, Cisco helped to build the China firewall. I was just chatting with the nice Fortinet people yesterday who sold their product to Burma, and they were running the Burmese firewall for several years. Uh, Syria uses WebSense. Iran used to use SmartFilter. I think UAE still does. Um, so walking through the vendor area out here is a, a who's who of evil corporations that have been helping to oppress people around the world. So the challenge that I have for you is... When these companies are selling their products, they're mostly selling it to Boeing and other huge companies. 99% of their money comes from selling it to other Western corporations to oppress their employees. So the question is, how can we separate the arms race? How can we make it so Boeing ends up happy, Boeing gets the product they want to keep their employees from reading news, but Burma doesn't end up happy. Burma doesn't get the product that they want to be able to track their dissidents and throw people in jail and so on. I'm not sure what the answer to that question is, but it would be really useful um, to solve that one. Okay, so I'm going to jump through a little bit more. Um, what other assumptions do we have to make? The first one is I have to assume that the users are not being attacked by their hardware and their software. If you've got key loggers installed, you're in bad shape. If you're in North Korea and you're lucky enough to be using an internet cafe, there's a dude standing behind you with an automatic rifle staring at your screen. My software will not help you in this case. In China, there's a rule lately where um, there has to be a video camera looking at each screen in the internet cafe. So if there's a video camera looking at your screen, I cannot help you. And I was talking to the human rights in China people, and they said, well, yeah, but the first person who walks in in the morning turns it away, and nobody ever turns it back. So it's actually not that bad. But I, I'm not sure where that one's going to go. Um, another example, I was doing a training for another East Asian communist country a while ago, and I was all set to say 40-bit encryption bad, 128-bit encryption good, let me teach you about Firefox, maybe you should stop using Windows, and they were getting phone calls in the audience saying, this person just got arrested, what should we do? And it turns out they were telling us horrible stories like, yeah, I use encrypted Skype, but there's a guy across the street with a parabolic microphone listening to everything I say. Or they steal my laptop and install new hardware and software. Can you take a look at it? So there are a lot of situations where we're not going to be able to solve that. Uh, another thing, um, make, we need to make sure that users actually have the right tour. If you've met me and you've figured out what a PGP key is and you've seen my business card that has the PGP key on it, you're in business. Thousands of people in the U.S. and Europe have done that. Uh, not very many people in Burma have done that. So do they have the real tour? How would they know? Uh, this is an ongoing question that somebody should solve. Another interesting point, publicity attracts attention. A lot of circumvention tools start out with a huge media splash, and they end up with a front page New York Times article or something. And pretty much every time I do a talk like this, there's somebody in the audience who's shown up to do the newspaper article on Tor Project Declares War on China. Lone American Hacker Conquers Communist Nation. And these are fantastic headlines, and they sell newspapers, but they're not actually going to help the arms race that we're in. The only people who are going to read that are Westerners who pay for the newspaper and the people who run the firewall in places like China. So our goal is to spread through social networks, through word of mouth, rather than by having huge press hits. Another thing to ponder, um, a lot of people say, as the firewall cracks down more and more, then Tor is going to become illegal in China. Nobody's going to be willing to use it. I actually think it's the opposite. I think as the firewall cracks down more and more, then 
more people will be using Tor, not because they're dissidents, but because they say, last week I could read my webcomics, and now I can't read my webcomics. That's dumb. I'm going to use Tor, and now I can read my webcomics. So I think that the average user of Tor is going to become a more and more ordinary person as the firewalls crack down more and more. Hard to say. We'll find out uh, as time goes on. Uh, we need to teach everybody around the world about the policy issues around privacy and circumvention and so on. There are an unending stream of people in Washington, D.C., and probably also in your capital, who make critical policy decisions and don't understand technology. Um, worse, there's a, a really high churn, churn rate. Every time I find a Department of Justice guy and I teach him all about Internet security, he goes to get a better job because now he knows all about Internet security. So how do we actually teach these people in a way that... Uh, that lets them make a good impact on policy. So one of my side hobbies is teaching law enforcement, uh, teaching senators, stuff like that, how Internet security works. And if you know anybody who needs to learn about that, uh, give me a holler. Your fine censorship filter that you are planning to roll out soon. One of the challenges is that when we go to places like China and we say, you're not a very good country because you filter your internet and that's not what a good country does, their answer is, England filters, Denmark filters, Australia filters. Why are you picking on us? We're just keeping our citizens safe, just like everybody else does. So it seems like if you can't win your battle here, we sure can't win the battle on China. So please go tell your legislators uh, or business people or politicians or whatever um, about how filters are not going to work in your country. And I'd be happy to chat more about that later on. Okay, so technical solutions are not going to solve the whole problem. Uh, there are still a lot of people in Iran and Thailand and China and Vietnam and so on who are saying, I'm so glad my government keeps me safe on the Internet. And while the majority of people in these countries are totally fine with being censored, this is not a technical problem. There's no program that I can give people in China that will magically turn them into a free country. Um, on the other hand, there are a lot of people in these countries who do want to speak freely and learn freely. Um, one of the challenges we have along those lines, I was talking to a journalist from the San Jose Mercury News a few years ago, and her question for me was, so how are you doing against China? And I had to say, wait a minute, I, I'm not doing against China. There are people in China who are doing against China, and maybe I'm sympathetic to them, but I write a program, and people all around the world use this program. Government, law enforcement, military, corporations, individuals, dissidents, activists, bloggers, ordinary soccer moms. My goal is to have a wide diversity of users so that they can blend together. It's not me writing software for China to do something or not do something. I've got no clue what China should be doing. Um, you should run a bridge or a relay. We only have 500 bridges right now, and part of that is because I haven't gotten around to telling people that bridges exist. So if you want to help fight censorship around the world, we could sure use some help. We also need help on the research angle. We need help on the advocacy angle. We need help on all sorts of things. And that's the end of that. I think I either have five minutes or zero minutes for questions. I'm not sure which. I have five minutes for questions. Perfect. So now's your chance. Okay, so the question is, IronKey uses Tor, but they use their own network. Is that good or bad? The answer is, I think their network has something like 30 relays, and I think they're in five locations. 
And if the security from the Tor network comes from a diverse set of locations for where the relays are, then IronKey's Tor network is not as safe as the main Tor network. On the other hand, I can understand why they're doing it, because they get to control the quality of service that they can provide. So do you want speed or do you want security? One of the questions that we were... So one of the tour people was doing a, a training in Beirut a little while ago, and one of the people uh, who was a blogger in some Middle Eastern country said, tour is slow, I want it to be faster. And his answer was, how fast do you want to die? So, yeah, it, it depends what your threat model is. How do you go about operating a bridge? What operating system? Uh, Linux, usually. So... Um, I'm hoping that you're using something where apt-get makes sense, or yum. apt-get install tor, and then edit etc tor tor rc, and uncomment a few lines, and restart it. Poof, you're a bridge. The challenging part is port forwarding. That's the missing step that's hard to do. Um, for the GUI that uh, we ship on Windows and OS X, it comes with a UPnP library, so if your Linksys router supports UPnP, then we auto-port forward. Um, but you probably shouldn't turn on UPnP because it's horrible for other reasons. Um, so right now we point people at portforward.com and we hope that they can take it from there. But that's definitely one of the missing steps. If you have any suggestions on how to streamline that process. On the Tor side, it's very easy. On Linux, you just edit the file. On Windows or OS X, you say share, relay, OK. Yes? Why is Boeing censoring the internet better than China censoring the internet? What an excellent question. Um, my first answer is, it's not. My second answer is, choose your battles, and the Boeing employees at least signed up to be censored, and they can leave when they want to. So it's maybe a little bit better. Uh, in my ideal world, everybody would have access to free information to read and to publish wherever they happen to be. But my ideal world is kind of far from where we are right now. Can you rate limit the bandwidth your bridge uses? Yes. And there are two ways to do that. One of them is you can say, I only want to use 400 kilobytes a second or 40 kilobytes a second. And the other one is to say, my ISP gives me two terabytes of transit for the month, so I want to use 1.8 terabytes of transit, and then I want to hibernate until the next month and then start up. Another question that you would have asked if you'd known more was, tell me about exit policies. Every Tor relay has an exit policy that specifies these are the IP addresses and the ports that I'm willing to connect to on the outside world. So that means about a third of the volunteer relays are open exits, meaning I'm going to let you browse the web or IRC or instant message through me. And about two-thirds of them are non-exits. They're people who say, I want to be R1 or R2, but not R3. I don't want to be that last guy, the guy who potentially sends angry mail to Hotmail or whatever it is that people are going to do out of the relay. So if you're in a position where you, you, your ISP likes you, then you should really run an exit relay because the world needs more of them. But if you're not in that sort of position, then you should run a non-exit relay and nobody will complain. The only thing you'll see is uh, you'll use bandwidth, however much you want to provide. One minute. One more question. Last chance. Surely there... Yes. So the question is, what if an attacker runs lots of relays in order to attack traffic on the Tor network? Yep. 
we need to make the Tor network bigger, and the larger the network becomes, the, the larger the attacker has to be in order to run a significant fraction of the network. And that's, I mean, that's pretty much the answer at this point. Um, there's a fellow at Georgia Tech who does botnet research, and every time he talks to me, he says, hey, Roger, with one command, I can sign up 100,000 Tor relays. What happens when I run this command? And the only answer I can give him right now is, please don't. I'd love to have a better answer. Um, we've got a couple of checks in there right now where if, you, if all the relays are on the same slash 16, then we use at most one of them in a path. But if you are a bad person and you own lots of computers around the world, then that doesn't bother you. So the answer is we need to get a lot of other people like you participating in the infrastructure so that it's large enough that not very many attackers can do that. And I think that's the end of my time. I will be around wearing a bright green T-shirt, easy to spot for the rest of the day. Happy to talk. Thank you.